Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, I speak to Nicola Solomon, who is the chief executive of the Society of Authors, not the Royal Society of Authors, as I mortifyingly called it within 30 seconds of of the beginning of our interview, uh, which was instantly live, hence the audio quality. Um, The Society of Authors has now been running for over a century. It's essentially a kind of trade body for all kinds of writers, illustrators and literary translators, and it helps them at all stages of their career with any kind of professional questions that they might have. So I wasn't here when Cassie did the interview. Uh, I was in the US, but I've listened to it and I think this is really fascinating and also really important. And it's easy as a writer to uh, focus on the craft and uh, not the business side, but the business side is super important. Uh, and Nicola is steeped in it and as, as well placed as anyone to help guide you through the mysteries of contracts and agreements and all that sort of thing. I think not only is it easy to, to worry more about the craft than the business, I also think sometimes as a writer you are encouraged to think more about the craft than the business, um, which is why uh, Nicola was so fascinating about this. She had a really good insights into the wider industry and the changes that have been taking place um, over a, a very long time frame. So it was really, really fascinating. Uh, and very graciously, she's also offered a reduced membership of the society to always take notes listeners. So if you go to their website and use the code ATN1512, that's ATN1512, you can get 15 months for the price of 12. Bargain. Uh, we really hope you enjoy this episode. Morning, everyone. Uh, thank you all so much for coming to our March uh, event of Always Take Notes. Uh, it's just me again uh, this, uh, this month because Simon is still away on his very glamorous American residency. He will be here next month um, and he will be here alone because I will be on my honeymoon. Um, we're here tonight with Nicola Solomon, who is the chief executor, executive of the Royal Society of Authors. No, not Royal. Society, Society of Authors. Got that all wrong. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, really excited to talk to you tonight about so many of the issues that have really, uh, I know, personally affected me and I know will have affected a lot of people in the room, people who uh, have written books or want to write books. Uh, and I, I'm really curious to know more about the Society of Authors, what it is you do um, when you're founded and a bit more about the organisation as a whole. Okay, first of all, it would be interesting for me to know if anyone here is a member, so I don't want to bore you too much, I know Catherine is, right? So, okay. But maybe tonight you'll learn some things you don't know. So Society of Authors was founded in 1884. It has probably the same mission statement then as it has now, uh, which is to protect the rights and further the interests of authors. And that is basically what we do. We do it in a number of ways. One of the ways that people come in and join us is we do free contract vetting. So if you've got a contract for anything uh, or any questions about any aspect of writing or whatever we have a team of six advisors they're incredibly knowledgeable they will go point by point through your contract and advise you on it or any problems that happen just to think of something that happened today we were contacted by someone who had a contract for an educational book it's done extremely well they want to do another edition but they want to halve the royalty so we checked the contract and we went, you know what, you can't do that. And, that, and that's just the sort of support the Society of Authors can give. So we do that. Then we do collective negotiations. Because we accept all types of authors, fiction, non-fiction, illustrators, translators, whatever, we negotiate with the BBC on script writing um, and on rates for that. We negotiate with publishers. We have very good 
relationships with publishers so that if something goes wrong and someone comes to us and they've got a problem with their editor, I can pick up the phone to the managing director of all the big companies and go, I don't think this is right. And they know that we'll only do it if it really isn't right. So actually things get sorted very quickly that way. So you're really sort of a good a good person to have on your team as a, as an author where you can sometimes very much feel uh, like the little guy um, and it's wonderful to have an advocate who who knows uh, the landscape well, the the different landscapes in which you're operating yes because we see about a thousand contracts a year and of course the other thing we do is is create community uh, we create skills in that people can come along to the sessions but we also have social events and we have groups we also have forums. So one of the things we're doing, for example, we've been very involved in appearances, and you probably saw that last year we did a lot of lobbying about people being paid for festivals and appearances, mm. uh, which is incredibly successful. But we also encourage people to tell us what rates they're being paid, so then we can get observed rates and we can say to people, you know, the going rate for that is actually so-and-so. And that kind of community is, is really important for people sometimes bigger communities, people like the translators who've got about 660 members sometimes smaller ones, one of our most recent groups is a writers as carers groups and that's, that's an online group for people who are writers but who are caring for somebody and therefore can't get out and feel very isolated mm. who are able to talk to other people in the same situation um, obviously, there are a lot of um, opportunities for writers. There are, you know, more freelancers um, than ever before. Uh, but what what can you offer, um, and what can you tell us about the opportunities that there are for, for authors and, and writers of all different kinds? We do put forward opportunities. We have an opportunities board. We don't find work for people. We will advise you on opportunities which aren't necessarily as good as they seem. One of the things we do a lot of advising on is competition terms to say whether this is really legitimate or whether you shouldn't be entering because you're being asked to give your copyright. Again, people being in contact with other people is incredibly helpful for knowing opportunities. We're starting up mentoring schemes. We already do them for broadcasting and for translators, and we'll do them for other areas so that people can know. But what we, what we, what we won't do is say, you go to this publisher for this book, although we might give you a steer in the right direction. But the other kind of opportunities in a way we help with is we also administer a lot of charities. And we both have charities that pay, that help people get money for writing. So that the Authors Foundation gives about £300,000 a year to help you with writing projects, um, to help fund those projects if they couldn't be funded some other way. We also have funds like the Authors Contingency Funds. So if you've fallen on hard times or need a bit of help, they're there. And then sub-funds within that, like, um, for example, the Margaret Ronda, which gives quite some quite specific funds to journalists over, women journalists over 35 who, <laughs> who need some help. So it's always worth thinking about creating opportunities in the sense of if you can't quite fund something, looking at whether the Authors Foundation or one of the others will help you. Um, we also run courses, for example, the Arts Council is running something for us in Bristol about how to make money from writing, how to how to get money from grants so we'll do those things mm. and we will help you not sign up for things that aren't going to advance your career as well. <laughs> Obviously your background is is legal and I wondered how you got into this very specific area of law um, because it seems like it's, it's it must be fairly niche what pushed you towards it? Yes I was a lawyer for 26 years a solicitor in private practice before I went to the Society of Authors 
I started off in a quite a general company. I then saw an advert for someone, for Stevens Innocent, which was a company which mainly acted for artists, writers, the big unions. It had come out of an, a, a law centre for artists called Art Law. And so I was always acting for individual creators of one time or another, and for unions and active people like the National Union of Mine Workers for years. And I did contact the Society of Authors then and say, I think your draft contracts are rubbish, you know, would you like some input? <laughs> and after that, they used to send me all the bits that needed legal advice. And then when Mark Lefanu was leaving, I thought, maybe I'll try doing this full time and move out of private practice. But I always liked entertainment law. In some ways, it's no different contract law from any other type. It's just a bit more interesting. And I was at one point we merged with a large firm and the property department were always sending around this information about how much money this deal was. We sold a building worth 10 million. That's like the only interest they can get from their work is the big figures, whereas ours is, is really, really interesting. And actually, we once had a spat where we sent around a picture a great case we'd done it was all about a lesbian kiss which had caused huge amount of fuss and we'd done a whole freedom of expression thing about this is completely fine of course you should be able to put it on the front of this magazine and we'd fought it so we sent that around the firm and some of the more staid people complained that we should be sending around these pictures and they sadly couldn't resist writing around and going you lot send around pictures of unsightly erections every day <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, that area of your work and your legal expertise is what helps you deal with some of the more fractious uh, areas that authors and, and writers of all kinds run into. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the challenges of, of, being, a, um, of being a writer from a, a legal perspective and how it is that the Society of Authors helps? I mean, there, there are so many legal pitfalls, but I don't want to make it sound as if writing is that impossible, but we can help at every level. We can help when you're writing. Um, I'm going to be giving a talk at the London Book Fair about using sources, about mm -hmm. research, about making sure that you don't defame somebody, about privacy law, which has become a very mm. big thing, and that really wasn't when I started out, so that you're not on the wrong side of the law there. Then again, looking at contracts, the bits you really need to look out for, the warranties and indemnities, the small print things that you might not realise. One of the things that we're negotiating a lot with publishers about are the effects of contracts. Things that in contracts look fine but actually make a huge difference to the bottom line. For example, high discount clauses. Mm -hmm. We're finding more and more that books are being sold at high discounts, authors' royalties are then going down because of that. So we would say any kind of contract come to us. and. And yes, so there's, there's legal questions on every side, but there's also those questions about, as you were talking about, feeling secure enough to negotiate, feeling secure enough to say, I don't really understand this, will you talk it through with me, and to deal with big corporations. So one of the ways we're dealing with that, we do it individually, but we also lobby government about it. Mm. And we've had quite a lot of successes recently. The EU is now suggesting legislation for transparency in accounting statements, mm -hmm. but also um, renegotiation clauses so that if you didn't make a fair share initially, that you should be able to go back later and ask for more, if, if we call them bestseller clauses, if your book was a big mm -hmm. success. So we do things on the micro one-on-one -on -one level, but we also do things on the macro level to try and make the landscape better. I think two of the sort of the big things that come up again and again in conversation uh, when I'm talking to people about 
uh, what it is that that writers do. I think the the two most sort of contentious issues are advances and and contracts. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about those sort of on a more granular level and what a good uh, advance looks like and, and a bad advance, and uh, and also a, a good contract and a bad contract. Things to watch out for. I suppose on good advances. That can so vary depending mm-hmm. on your book. But what is very clear is that advances have gone down massively. And one of the things that really concerns us is particularly middleist authors who mm-hmm. once would have made a living from writing and would get advances that make it suitable, that make it possible for you to write. They're just not really there. And that is extremely difficult. And there's not a lot we can do about that, but we are very aware. We do a lot of lobbying about the fact that authors, average authors' incomes, this is full-time authors, have gone down to £11,000. Why is this? It's very hard to know. There's a number of causes. Publishers will say that they've got more pressures, they're now publishing in more than one format, that their prices have gone down. That's true, but publishers' profits have not gone down in the same way that authors' profits have gone down. In fact, I did some back-of-an-envelope calculations, and I worked out that over exactly the period that authors' profits have gone, authors' earnings have gone down by 29%, publishers' earnings have gone up by 29%. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not, it's not... It's not all about greedy publishers. It's also about the fact they have other things to pay out. We've lost the netbook agreement... Mm-hmm. Books are much cheaper than they used to be. um, They're highly discounted. But Amazon, quite particularly, takes a very large cut when they're selling. So there is less money to go around. And then we have the rise of a celebrity culture. So the people at the top are getting a lot richer, but the people in the middle and at the bottom Mm -hmm. are getting a lot poorer. And in terms of um, the sort of the stretch that I don't think many people realise, when advance is a very misleading term, it sounds like you're going to get it in advance when, in fact, that might not be the case at all. You know, is there anything that um, that you, the Society of Authors or you in particular are particularly worried about in in terms of contracts being split up? And well, we wrote to educational publishers not very long ago because they'd written to all the their members saying we we think it's more convenient for you if we don't pay the advance at all before you deliver the book. Uh, in fact, and we were like, that's not an advance at all. That's a retreat. You know, so you, if it's meant, and we we said to them, you're going to get worse books if you're not giving them money in advance how people are going to buy the time to write them but we are seeing that we do shout about it we do call publishers out for it but in the end it's a commercial world if people are prepared to write for certain amounts it's very difficult and you're quite right one needs to look really carefully and work out when this fantastic advance is being paid and we are very tough with agents as well and go we don't want you just looking at headline figures we also want to work out if it's worthwhile but I think what we're really about is about empowerment because Mm -hmm. we'll be there and speak to each author individually and say, I want you to look at this deal with your head, not with your heart. Is this worthwhile for you? What are they giving? Is it worth taking a low advance because you'll get a higher royalty later? Mm -hmm. Is it worth going and self-publishing? You do have that option now and in many cases it may be better. Um, Particularly, you need to really check with the publisher what they're going to do for you. And you need to make sure that they are committed to doing something that works for you. Look at other ways of funding. Look at crowdfunding, if that, if that will work better. You have got options in a way you didn't have, really. 
And I think another thing that, that we spoke about just before um, the interview started was this sense of empowerment. I, I, when you're a lone author or, you know, um, or, you know, a, a journalist who's going into to writing a book, you don't realise and you feel um, that a hundred more books could be published uh, and you feel that you, you don't have any of that power and is something that the Society of Authors does because they band people together, gives you a little bit more bargaining power and, and has the the ability, therefore, to, to stop people accepting bad deals, which in the end brings everyone else's deals down rather than up, rather than advancing them. I think it really does. I think that people do understand, if, if you join the Society of Authors, you will get help too. You know, we won't stop people having deals, but we will make them stand back and think about them and we will say to people why are you doing this and I think that's very helpful it's difficult in a world where people are desperate to get published and it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily bad to accept a deal it's not going to pay you very much but you've got to know why you're doing it I think that being together is very empowering to people I think that knowing that we can take over and help or that we will write letters for people to send on to publishers and not just publishers people like Amazon as well we mm -hmm. have meetings with I think it it is empowering, it is important. I think that everybody as a writer should join the Society of Authors because not only can we help people individually, but if we band together, we can collectively make a difference. And that's enormously important in areas like law. One of the things that we're also working with, and here I've got all the other creator organisations together, is lobbying on contract terms and actually asking for law to protect creators in the same way that we have law to protect consumers. Mm -hmm. And those would demand things in contracts under the creator acronym which um, if I can remember them all stands for C would be clarity clearer contracts, written contracts because a lot of journalists don't mm. even get written contracts that you get fair remuneration that you mm. get um, that you get proper accounting clauses that there are limited terms so that mm. so contracts will revert to you if mm -hmm. necessary because another thing we find is that a lot of contract, a lot of books are tied up with contracts mm -hmm. with publishers who won't give the rights back but are no longer exploiting them. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair because authors can make money out of those. One of the examples I often give is Catherine Gaskin. The Society of Authors, another thing we do is that we own a number of estates, including the Virginia Woolf estate. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're beneficiaries of them. And we were given the Catherine Gaskin estate. And all those books were not being used by the publisher. They were all out of print. We managed to revert the rights. We've self-published them. We're now earning about £6,000 a year for each title. Well, considering that we have a pension fund, mm. and our pension fund gives you £2,000 a year, and people want that, you know, actually, if you can make your books your pension fund, and if you can get the rights back, that's terribly important. And then ownership and credit, something else that people don't look for in contracts is to make sure they're properly credited, particularly illustrators, particularly translators, because these days it's all about discoverability. There are 160,000 books published a year, I think, in the UK. You need to get your name out there, and if the metadata that's on Amazon doesn't have your name on it, you're never going to get known. Yeah. So that's really important. And then finally, we feel that everyone should have... All, all contract terms should be reasonable. One of the examples for those are warranties and indemnities. Far too often, the author is made responsible for areas that they can't possibly actually be responsible for. 
for example, ghostwriters. Mm-hmm. We act for a lot of ghostwriters, and it's not fair that they should be giving an indemnity that everything in the book is accurate. They can't possibly know that. Mm. They should only be giving indemnities about their own work. Yeah. One of the things, um, obviously, since the the book market has changed and um, areas of it have proliferated in very unexpected ways, and the, therefore the contracts that authors are given are longer and uh, more terrifying than ever before. You know, how has that changed what you do and you know, what can authors look out for in the sort of, you know, the less headline items right down the end, which actually may affect them more in the long term? Yes, that's right. It's, it's complicated because of things in different formats. And some of them become much easier because some contracts these days just go, we'll give you 50% net receipts of everything and actually mm. don't do it. You do need to look at future proofing. One of the other things that, we've, that we think is really important is that you shouldn't be giving rights unless... You understand what you're giving, and unless you know that that publisher is able to exploit them. Oh, and that was what E is, by the way, exploitation. That publishers, that we should, we believe in use it or lose it clauses, so that if um, publishers aren't exploiting rights, mm-hmm. you can ask for them back. If you're forced to give them, at least you can ask for them back. So look for that. Don't be scared of asking questions. That's something that I think that authors really don't understand, that publishers really don't mind people who negotiate, who ask questions, who say, can't you give me a higher rate Mm. on this? And for every clause you don't understand, you should be ringing up the publisher and going, what is that? What does it mean? What does this high discount clause actually mean? This says that you're going to be cutting my royalties to 5% if you do high discount. Will you be doing that? How often will you be doing that? What proportion of my royalties Mm. will that cover? There's nothing wrong with asking, and if and you will, you will often find that publishers don't know the answers. In which case, they should be asking for you. And actually, I was just at Hachette, who generally we have very good relationships with, but we've had a lot of complaints recently about their contracts having very very poor terms in them. And Hachette said to me, "But it's all negotiable, you know." And I said, "That just isn't." You should be starting... You know that many authors will not feel able to negotiate with you. If you think you're a fair publisher, you should start with the basis of a fair contract to negotiate up with. You should not be starting with the lowest level and thinking, well, maybe we'll get away with it. What was their response to that? They actually completely agreed. They were like, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe we should look at whether it's become slightly out of balance. And I said to them, it's not necessarily your fault because your contracts are drafted by lawyers. Your lawyers are acting for you, so it's in, they will always do the thing which is best for the publisher, but then somehow you've got to have the publisher to look at it overall and go, I don't think this is fair. And after all, there are signatories to the Publishers Association Code of Practice which says that contracts will be fair. So authors need to be interested and they probably need to be looking over their agent's shoulders more than, than they currently yeah, do? some agents are really good, some are not, but I... As I said, I think that asking questions is good. Many, many agents also are perfectly happy or even recommend that the contracts go to us as well because they know that we'll look at different bits and they know we see more contracts a year than anybody. So we will know, we will see them both at the time they're negotiated, but we will also see them much more than most agents at the time they go wrong. So we will know that that clause 21, which looks innocuous, has caused this problem for this author. But of course... The other problem we have is so many old contracts which don't really cover ebooks or don't really 
where people are trying to stretch them mm. to cover things which they were never meant to cover. And how do you sort of, do you sort of go back in and, and have to renegotiate with the original publishers, or you know, especially now that so many imprints have been bought by bigger, you know, what what is the situation in, in that case? I mean, it it is interesting. Lots of lots of the the big publishers have consolidated, and that means it's hard to negotiate. Also, with the big publishers, they are owned by shareholders. So they have to be making money for the shareholders, so they're not ploughing so much back in. Publishers do still publish an enormously widespread, probably too many books, Mm. but they are going to be demanding a certain level of profit before it's worth them Mm. publishing you, before they drop you, which is a higher level than it used to be. And a book that's earning steadily £6,000 a year for a publisher, they are going to drop in a way that they would once consider it's perfectly good backlist and they'll carry Mm. on with it. But the other side, which is really exciting, is a whole load of new, interesting imprints that do different things, that sell things in different ways, that are niche, that are specialist, and that are enthusiastic. And it's really worth looking at those. They often offer better rates, too. Um, on to sort of two quite contentious things. Um, the first is the issue of, of privacy, which you mentioned before. Can you talk a little bit more about that, why it's become um, uh, more problematic? One of the reasons that the law of privacy has really changed I think, and this is from a lawyer's perspective, is there was a, celebrities have money, and there was a push by celebrities to try and protect their privacy, and we had a ser- and there was a feeling it had gone too much the other way, and there were a series of legal cases which gave rights of privacy. Um, the first, when I started out in practice, you could really do anything. There was a very famous case where. Where somewhere where a journalist went into a hospital for a guy called Gordon Cade had a head injury, got an, an interview with him. During you know, he'd had this head injury, he was clearly not compassmentous, published it everywhere, and there was nothing anybody could do. So you could see that probably some protections were needed. We then had a series of cases, the most famous in some ways, which was the Princess Caroline mm. case, um, where the courts decided that there is no public interest in knowing the whereabouts of people doing ordinary things, whatever their degree of fame is. Mm. Um, and, of course, famously said, you know, the public interest is not the same as what the public is interested in. But those things have gone further and further, so one has to be very careful and in some place, and even more with private people. So, so there may be some public interest in talking about people who are celebrities, MPs, whatever, but there's almost no public interest in saying things about individual people. Mm. But what that's meant is you can't go into a school and take photographs of children doing ordinary things in the classrooms because there are privacy and data protection issues. So almost any picture you see of a classroom will be a mock-up. Or you ha- if you have to ask people's permission all the time, then I think street photography, for example, has suffered terribly. Those Cartier-Bresson pictures could not be taken today. Mm. Um, and again, when authors write, they need to be very careful. The good thing, though, is that privacy does not apply to dead people. Mm. If you write history, you're all right. <laughs> Ditto defamation. Um, the other... Uh uh, issue which feels particularly current at the moment is um, freedom expression uh, versus trolling and I wanted to hear your take on that because uh, yes that is very um, very current very contentious actually I got into trouble recently for this so um, I probably shouldn't talk about it again but one of the areas that we find people come to us all the time is 
authors shouldn't write about this and they shouldn't write about that and you should tell them so and so. Um, one is around diversity and clearly we are all extremely concerned about the lack of diversity in the publishing industry mm. as in other industries but my view on that is we should be encouraging as many people as to write as possible and they should be writing on as diverse subjects as possible but we shouldn't be asking everybody in every book to make it entirely diverse otherwise they're all going to be the same if they're populated with loads of characters and then people get caught entirely on the other side every time someone black writes about someone white someone female writes about someone male we're getting accusations of cultural appropriation. Mm. So people are dealing with this very narrow tightrope of, can I put someone in? And for example, our illustrators, if you look at Shirley Hughes' books, my children mm -hmm. brought up on Shirley Hughes' books, who is one of our great members, um, they're all full of pictures of classrooms and you'll have a black child and a disabled child and whatever, just in the illustrations. Many of our illustrators say, I'm scared of putting that child in. I'm not, you know... I'm white, I'm not disabled, I'm, I now can't draw those in, somebody, in case somebody complains. So it's actually had completely the opposite effect in some places to the one we wanted, and that's concerning. But other issues, we also had something recently where I was asked to go and see the all-party parliamentary group on suicide and self-harm because they were concerned about the way authors are portraying suicide and whether that could lead to other people um, following those methods or being you know or coming across it or being upset and generally our view is one we absolutely do not tell mm -hmm. this is what's right however we will suggest to our authors that they think about being responsible about anything they write that they that they think about researching properly but frankly, if they want to take it out of their imagination and out of their own head and write it, we will utterly support their right to do so. And my background was freedom of expression. I did all sorts of interesting cases in practice, including somebody who had made some earrings out of freeze-dried human fetuses. I did not think it was tasteful, but, you know, I was going to absolutely support... If they felt that this was artistic expression, I was going to support that, and that was, that was our job, and I've always taken the view that that's, we're standing up for authors on doing that. And no, I do not think that trolling is freedom of expression. I, I think there's something to be said on all sorts of levels when you're dealing with your publisher, when people are dealing with you, um, the problem we've been talking about, when people ask you for about politeness, actually. If you wouldn't like it being done to you, why are you doing it? Final question is about, it's a very wide ranging and broad one, about the future of the book and the future of publishing and how that will affect um, your members and, and other authors. One of the things, obviously, it's, we've been thinking about that for years with ebooks, and I remember a time when I was forever going to talks on ebooks in the hope that the speaker would know something about them, but really nobody did. Everyone was in the room <laughs> trying to find out for someone else. And you know what? They've come along, and I think the publishing industry has thought, mm, we've done rather well, actually, because sales of ebooks are now falling. It's kind of stabilised as a part of the market. Some areas they've done very well. Some areas, like children's, they haven't really taken on at all. I think that things will probably change later. I think that once we get in a generation who are completely used to reading that way, maybe the ebook balance will change again. There is clearly going to be a place for a book. There's clearly a place for really beautiful books. Another thing to say is that production values in books have 
really fallen. Ebooks mm. have been great because we have such beautiful books out there now that people really do want to own mm. and have as, as objects. And again, the people have choices. I, what is noticeable though, is that people are spending less time reading and there is vast competition from other media. So this isn't a question between books and e-books, this is a question around other media. One of the big rises in books has been audio. We've had a 27% rise mm. in audio last year because people like doing things that they can multitask and mm. do. So I do think that the way we approach books will change. But we've been going since 1884. There have been, and actually the basic problems for authors remain the same. I, sometimes if things have gone really badly, we have all our minute books back to 1884 in the office. I'll, you know, I'll look at the minutes from 1934. And do you know what? We're discussing exactly the same issues. We're discussing copyright. We're discussing contract. We're discussing falling earnings for authors. We're discussing exactly the same things. And that will continue because authors, in the end, are creators. They are imaginative they will need things, they will do different things, but I'm not overall concerned about the loss of the book, which is good because one thing we really need now is books. We need empathy and we need people who will put other viewpoints and can listen to them. Hello, it's us again uh, with a swift update from our lives. Um, I was in Russia uh, for uh, 12 days on a mountaineering expedition to write a piece for the FT. Uh, very interesting, not been to the country before, um, but fairly exhausting. Uh, just been back sort of sorting things out over the past few days. Cassie, what about you? I have remained sequestered in my sister's shed in southwest England, uh, <laughs> trying to, uh, to write the book. I'm sort of well, I, I was about to say I'm halfway through, but that wouldn't be true. And uh, the deadline is, is looming. It's now sort of due in at the end of October, which is terrifying. But apart from that, I gave a, a talk at the National Portrait um, Gallery about colour, which was great. And um, my next big piece of news is that The Secret Lives of Colour, which is my first book, is going to be Radio 4's Book of the Week very shortly, which I am thrilled about. Big triumph for Cassia there. Um, yeah, the other exciting <laughs> development in her life is that she's about to get her very own shed, uh, shed of my in an undisclosed location in South London. Um, but more, <laughs> more news on that to follow, and uh, we hope to have you with us next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Like all writers, we love feedback, so do please find us on social media. On Facebook, you can just search for us at Always Take Notes. On Twitter, we're at Take Notes Always. And we're also on Instagram. And if you've enjoyed the show, we'd love if you could leave a review on iTunes. That really helps. Thank you. Bye.